Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Southern trees bear a strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Forsyth County, Georgia is infamous for being, for a remarkably long stretch of the 20th century, one of the only all-white counties in America. It's the kind of place where you might expect to find the original America First signs, the ones carried by the KKK, where there weren't any segregated bathrooms for coloreds and whites only because all of the black residents had been forced to leave, where until the 1990s, black families driving through would be sure to pack a spare tire and a full tank of gas for fear of breaking down. This week, we're revisiting our interview with Patrick Phillips, who wrote a book about Forsyth County, not just out of historical interest, but because he grew up there. He was one of the white residents in that county, and he was witness to a lot of the ugly things that happened. And his book, Blood at the Root, is not just a history, but also his personal reckoning with a ghost story that he heard for most of his childhood. The story of how, in 1912, White Knight Riders violently drove all 1,100 black citizens out of the county and out of their homes. Ministers and teachers, field hands and farmers, servants in the rich white houses, tradesmen, children, sharecroppers and farmers who owned their own land, all forced out with arson and terror, all their land and property and livestock abandoned and quietly taken over by their white neighbors. It was, as Patrick Phillips calls it in the subtitle of his book, a racial cleansing in America. It's an ugly history. But with white nationalist rallies now regularly scheduled on the national calendar, it's history that's popping up in the most obvious, violent, and disgusting ways. It's not a ghost story anymore. And it's not just the KKK. The people who pushed out Forsyth's black residents weren't Klan members. In 1912, there was no Klan. They were neighbors. And for the time, that was normal. Patrick Phillips joins us from New York. Thanks for talking to us. Absolute pleasure being here. So what compelled you to tell the story of Forsyth County now? 
You know, um, there are a couple of answers to that question. You know, I was I was raised in Forsyth County, so I grew up there from the time I was seven years old, and which means it's home. Uh, and I've had a lifelong interest in these events, and really a kind of lifelong mystery surrounding them. Um, in that, in that, the Black community of Forsyth was invoked and a kind of legend or myth when I was a kid, and I always had wondered about them and wondered if it would be possible to learn the truth. Um, I suppose the other reason for focusing for the length of an entire book on this particular racial cleansing is um, while this happened in a lot of places in the Jim Crow era and in a lot of places in the country throughout the 20th century, um, in Forsyth County, it lasted an incredibly long time. So the persistence of it is probably the thing that sets Forsyth County apart. And that meant that while the original waves of night riding and violence happened in 1912. Forsyth was still a white county when I grew up there in the 70s and 80s. And it was still the case that like a UPS driver who stopped for gas or had a flat tire or for any reason, if there was a black driver who found him him or herself in Forsyth County, there was a really high chance of some kind of incident taking place, whether it was just intimidation or violence. And there were a number of episodes where this was reinforced over the course of decades. And it's something that was passed down generation to generation. So, you know, I became very interested not only in the events of 1912, but also in how this um, fear and kind of hysteria surrounding race was transmitted, you know, across the generations. So what happened briefly in 1912? What sparked this reign of violent terror? So in in early September of 1912, there were two separate incidents where white women were at least perceived by the white community to have been attacked by black men. The first case was a woman named Ellen Grice. And, you know, she, the newspaper said that she, quote, awoke and found a Negro man in her bed. Uh, And that's really um, almost all that can really be known about the story. That led to the, the public whipping on the town square of a local minister named Grant Smith. And it kind of cre- it started this hysteria and it started these rumors that there was a black insurrection, that um, the black men of the county were on a kind of rape spree. It happens that about a week later, a white woman, May Crow, was in fact found bludgeoned in the woods of Oscarville, which is a small farming community in the county just a few miles from where I grew up. And her body was found in the woods. She was in a coma for about two weeks and then died at the age of 18 of her wounds. And, you know, it was widely understood in the county, among the white people of the county, that this was just proof that the rumors were true, that the black men of the county were on a kind of um, reign of terror. And so that led to night riding, church burning, shooting into the houses of, of black property owners and black sharecroppers, and eventually ended in the expulsion of the entire black community, which was about 1,100 people in 1912. And were any of the, the white people who did this ever punished for what they did? No, there was a lynching. In the midst of all of this, there was also one of the men who was accused of the attack on May Crow was named Rob Edwards, was a 24-year-old uh, field hand. And he was arrested along with two teenage boys, a boy named Oscar Daniel, who was 18, and his cousin, Ernest Knox, who was 16, Rob Edwards, very soon after his arrest, was taken from the county jail, dragged around the town square um, with a noose around his neck, and eventually hoisted up uh, from sort of the the cross piece, the yard arm of a of a telephone pole. And at that point, hundreds of white citizens had come into town, and they all fired into his corpse. So you know, it was really um, 
it was a it wasn't just a lynching by a small lynch party. It ended up really being a lynching that was participated in by hundreds of people. So um, as far as I know, I found absolutely no evidence of any arrests or indictments or any prosecution for any of the crimes against black people in the county. And, and really no names were ever named. Nothing appeared in the local papers. It was always reported as the, the actions of, quote, persons unknown. So what happened to those who were accused besides that one lynching? So Ernest Knox and Oscar Daniel and his sister, who was actually married to Rob Edwards, so she was at this point the widow of the man who had been lynched. They were they were common law married. Um, so the three of them, Ernest Knox, Oscar Daniel, and his sister Jane, were all three arrested, and they were brought. They were sent to Atlanta for their own safety, along with some other prisoners, and they were eventually brought back to the county for trial. There was a one day trial during which the state uh, militia, the Georgia National Guard, patrolled the streets of the county to prevent another lynching. And then after, you know, two very rushed trials, uh, Ernest Knox and Oscar Daniel were convicted and sentenced to hang. It turns out that the judge in the trial was himself later going to lead a lynch mob. The the lynching of Leo Frank made a lot of national headlines in 1915 and actually led to the formation of the Anti-Defamation League. He was a Jewish man accused of a rape and murder in Atlanta. So the judge in the trial later led a lynch mob. A number of the jurors were future Ku Klux Klansmen. The sheriff of Forsyth County was a future Ku Klux Klansman. So, you know, when you start bringing in all of this later evidence of what some of the people involved in the trial were capable of doing... It, it definitely started to seem like a kangaroo court kind of rush trial that was a show um, before these two teenage boys were sentenced to death. And then they were hung in a very big public hanging just away from the town square where 5,000 people came and it was described as a kind of festival atmosphere. And they sat on the hillsides ringing the gallows and, you know, really celebrated the execution of these two teenage boys. So what happened to the land and property that Forsyth's black residents were forced to abandon? There are really three different outcomes. One is some of them sold, but probably at very depressed prices. There's an example of a man named Alex Hunter who bought his land for $1,500 in the summer of 1912 and then sold it for $500 just a few months later. There were people who left and sold many years later who seemed to have tried to wait it out. And there are, there are a handful of those in the records. But then there are also a lot of people who seem to have walked away, never sold their land. There's no evidence of any sort of transaction. And yet, in looking through the titles, eventually those same land lots appear in a different sale with a different owner. And what seems to have happened in those cases is simply a theft, not at gunpoint or not, you know, in a kind of dramatic Hollywood fashion, but a theft that simply involves someone at the county courthouse overlooking a gap in the title and simply approving a sale of land that the seller did not actually own. There may have been a wink and a nod, you know, at some point when when the transaction was allowed to go through, despite the fact that the seller did not really seem to have title. Yeah, sort of like what happened with Jewish businesses in Germany and elsewhere in Europe. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's a fair parallel. It really belies the cliched notion of a kind of dramatic theft of land, which I had always had in in my imagination. And it's much more mundane. And it's a kind of slow and grinding, quietly devastating, bureaucratic seizure of the land, one lot at a time, one fence post at a time. 
Yeah, the way you describe it in the book, much of Forsyth's history in the 20th century seems to be like that mundane, quiet racism that only flares up every once in a while. Um, as you trace in those outbursts of violence that you say happen every decade or so that ultimately just end up leaving the town as white as ever. Yeah, you know, Congressman John Lewis, who was who was on the march in 1987, uh, he said to a reporter, there are pockets that the civil rights movement passed by, and Forsyth County is one of those places. And, you know, the astonishing thing is that it lies 40 miles from Ebenezer Baptist Church, which was Martin Luther King's home church, 40 miles north of his birthplace on Auburn Avenue. And at, even at the time in 1912, Atlanta was really the epicenter of black intellectual life. So Forsyth was sort of hiding in plain sight through a lot of the decades after the civil rights movement because the the Knight Riders in Forsyth were so successful, there was really nobody in Forsyth to protest. There was no one there, and there were no signs for white and colored drinking fountains in Forsyth, and they didn't have to segregate the bathrooms because it was an entirely white place. They had won. But the Black Freedom Movement was coming for Forsyth. In a minute, we'll fast forward to 1987, when a group of activists organized a peace march to protest the ongoing segregation of the county. Stay with us. Of the gallant and then in 1987, Forsyth did have its dramatic confrontation. That was the, the March of Brotherhood that you talked about, which was on the 75th anniversary of that initial racial cleansing in 1912. You were there, right? Yeah, that's the that's the part where I kind of entered the story. Um, we had moved to Forsyth County in 1977 when I was in second grade. In 1987, to our real when I was a junior in high school, to our real astonishment, my sister noticed an advertisement in the local paper that said the following Saturday there was going to be a civil rights march commemorating the second anniversary of the Martin Luther King national holiday, which was still at the time a fairly controversial holiday, believe it or not. You know, the short version is a a line of about 75 activists, largely African-American activists from the Martin Luther King Center in Atlanta, but also a handful of Forsyth residents lined up on this highway. And very soon after they started marching, violence broke out. There was a real mob waiting to meet them of kind of what rebel flag waving and uh, rock-throwing white people, many of them county residents. There were a lot of arrests that day. And at that same moment when my parents were in this line of marchers and ducking ducking the rocks and bottles and trying to just make it through, um, I, was, I was 16 that year, and I had driven uh, in my pickup truck to meet my parents that morning, and I got there late. So, you know, as, as was my way when I was 16, I arrived late to meet my parents. And as a result, I ended up on the town square where I thought the march was going to arrive. And I was waiting for this rendezvous um, for a line of marchers that I didn't know were never going to make it there. And so I found myself in a big crowd on the steps of the county courthouse. And at a certain point, you know, I heard a, a PA click on and I heard someone scream into a megaphone, you know, raise your hand if you love white power. And all of these people all around me screamed out and raised their hands and started chanting, you know, white power. And so I backed my way out of it, having thought I was at a peace rally. I suddenly realized I was in the middle of a Klan rally. Wow. And did your family make it to the second Brotherhood March that followed after this one? Yeah, we were part of that. You know, it felt like everybody in the state of Georgia was part of the second one. After the first march, 
um, Hosea Williams, who was one of Martin Luther King's right-hand men. And the King Center planned a really massive gathering. Coretta Scott King was there. Julian Bond was there. Andrew Young. A lot of real heroes of the 50s and 60s civil rights marches were part of it. So it became this day of real celebration, whereas the first march had had about 75 protesters. The second one, the crowd was estimated at 20,000. There were hundreds of buses driving up from Atlanta. There were helicopters flying overhead. There were news cameras everywhere. You know, it was a sort of triumphant day. And then, and then of course, everybody went home. And I found in newspaper coverage from that day lots of quotes from officials in Forsyth who said, look, when everybody leaves, we'll go back to living like we always have. What really struck me in the book was that afterwards, the response from these officials was eerily similar to 1912. You know, this violent, racist mob was mostly outsiders. They weren't from Cumming. They weren't from Forsyth. They were, you know, hillbillies. Was that true? And, and where do you think that comes from? You know, it wasn't true. It was not true. Seven of the eight people who were arrested and convicted of crimes had Forsyth County addresses. But, you know, I'd heard that my whole life, that notion that the troublemakers came from outside. I'd been fed a story my whole life that the original racial cleansing was the work of the Ku Klux Klan. And this was not a story that held up to any kind of scrutiny. When I tried to find a Klan connection to what happened in 1912, I didn't get very far because the Ku Klux Klan had been prosecuted pretty much out of existence in the 1870s after the Klan Act was passed. Those white-sheeted, horse-riding, torch-wielding Klan guys that I had always imagined perpetrating this crime, those were invented by Hollywood, by D.W. Griffith's film Birth of a Nation, three years after the racial cleansing in 1912. So that left me with the question of, okay, so if the Klan didn't do this, who did do this? And I found a really important letter written by a woman named Ruth May Jordan, who was a 14-year-old at the time, and she recounted her memories of those days when she was 80 years old, 82, I think. And in her letter, there's a sentence where she says, you know, it weren't the Klan did this, it was just ordinary people of the county. And that felt that felt like a, a really important discovery to me from someone who was there, an eyewitness saying that. So the the denials and the deep desire for residents of Forsyth to distance themselves from this horrific event and, you know, real terrorism is something that I'd heard a lot. A lot of people in the county did the same thing in 1987. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they wanted to believe that. I, I think they wanted desperately to believe that all of this was coming from elsewhere. Yeah. You call the story of, of this whitewashing, this racial cleansing, a ghost story. It was something you heard from the regular residents, you know, on, on the back of a bus going to school one day. So what kind of research did you do to, to dig up this history and turn it from a ghost story into a, like a work of history? You know, I hope I did that. And it, and it was a ghost story. Um, and it that felt like the right term for way, the way it was told to me and the way I'm, you know, I'm sure I repeated it as a schoolboy in that it was murky. It was full of myth and legend, and there were no names or dates or places. The reality behind all of that was something that I found by just being kind of ravenously interested in every last scrap of information I could find. So I read every newspaper article I could find. And of course, that also required some triangulation and some verification of what was in the papers, because this was usually an inherently racist press. And the point of view was often a white supremacist point of view, even in the newspapers. And then there was also a problem in the research in that the written sources are themselves kind of inherently biased towards the white point of view. The people who were forced out of Forsyth 
included a, a small handful of educated, literate African-Americans, but a much, much larger group of illiterate people who never owned a piece of land, never voted, never paid a poll tax, and really many of them never left a single mark on any piece of paper anywhere. And so um, telling their story was a tremendous challenge. And as I worked and as this mountain of evidence from the white point of view grew, I was constantly worried about the dearth of information on the other side. And while I was interested in what had happened in the white community and how this crime took place, I was also deeply interested in reconstructing the black community that had existed before it. And so for that, I did a lot of interviewing and I used, you know, I used Ancestry.com amazingly to track down a lot of the descendants of the black community forced out in 1912. And I tried to find and record their family stories. And some of them pulled old photographs down out of the top of a closet. And they would put me in touch with other relatives. And I I just um, tried to tap into that oral history to help supply some of the gaps. So was it surreal to talk to descendants of these black refugees, basically, and then the next talk to, you know, the the white residents of, of Forsyth who'd been there for decades, whose families had been around in 1912 and even before then? Was was that surreal? Yeah, it was very strange. And, and it was also weird because a lot of the black families I talked to, like, they hadn't been to Forsyth. They weren't going to go over there. They weren't going to go to the Forsyth County Courthouse. They didn't have any desire to go to this place that they had been warned about their whole lives and where they had heard these very painful stories about what had happened to their ancestors. And so at times I felt like a real go-between. So yeah, there were a few moments where I it did occur to me that I had an unusual set of qualifications to be trying to do this um, and that a descendant of some of those black families would have had a, a very difficult time getting some of the white people to talk to them mm. about about some of this. Are there any traces of Black Forsyth left in, in current day Forsyth? If you go to Forsyth County today or to Cumming, can you tell that this was once part of the history? Not at all. You know, I looked for that. And when I first, when I grew up there, I thought how strange it is that all of the signs and vestiges of that vanished world are, com- that, that you can't find them anywhere, that they're all gone. And then after a decade working on this story, now when I go back, I see them everywhere I look. You can stand on the corner where Rob Edwards was lynched, but there's no plaque, there's no sign, there's no mention of it anywhere. You can go to the Forsyth County Historical Society and you can find lots of stuff about Confederate generals and about the quote-unquote pioneer uh, settlers of Forsyth. And you can find a lot of stuff about the Cherokee, but there's almost no trace of the black community. There are no, you know, I have photographs of some of the leaders of the black community in 1912. You won't find any of that there. What's shocking is what you find instead. Uh, the Historical Society is known as the Hiram Parks Bell Center. And Hiram Parks Bell's statue is also looks out over the town square. He was a Confederate war hero, a representative at the Confederate Congress, who then became a U.S. representative from Georgia. And he was really part of the group of Southern Democrats who in the 1870s helped expel all of the black elected leaders who had taken office during Reconstruction. And he wrote very proudly of how he had helped secure a constitution that ensured white over black domination. So this is who celebrated. And the the judicial circuit in Forsyth County is known as the Bell Judicial Circuit. Hmm. And is Forsyth still all white? Are there any minority residents now? 
it is not all white, and it has changed radically. Um, well, maybe that's overstating it. It has changed. The key change is population. I think the population of Forsyth is now over 200,000. When, when the violence happened in 87, I think it was in the 35,000 residents, something around there. So it has had a really monumental um, change in growth in the population, exponential growth in the population. And along with that have come a lot of people with no knowledge of the history of the county and, you know, who aren't part of this long tradition. So as a result, there are young black families moving into the county. I think at present the demographics are about 10 percent um, Latino, Latina, 8 percent Asian. And I think the black population is approaching 3 to 4 percent. Wow. So it's, you know, it's a place that now tolerates um, people of color. And there are, you know, there are black families moving to Forsyth for all the same reasons anyone else does. It's a it's a commutable um, destination now. It's a bedroom community to Atlanta. It has a you know very deep housing stock and very good public schools. We've got links in the show notes to Patrick Phillips's book Blood at the Root, more relevant in 2018 than it was in 2016 when we first aired this episode. It's an ugly history, but it's a beautiful book and a moving tribute to the lives of the black citizens of Forsyth County who were forced out. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes. The twisted mouth Scent of magnolia Sweet and fresh Then the sudden smell Of burning flesh Here is a fruit Crows to pluck for the rain together, for the wind to suck, for the sun to rot, for the tree to drop. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.